Theatrical Shenanigans presents The Panel Presents with Melissa Schmitz, Tony Vale, Jacqueline Priscorn, John Patrick Bray. Hello there and welcome to our second instalment of The Panel Presents. I hope you're well out there wherever you're listening. If you've not listened to this particular series before, then you are in for a real treat because not only do you have my company, but the company of four amazing people who are involved in theatre worldwide in loads of different ways. They're here to discuss various topics about the world of theatre and provide you with some interesting and insightful responses to topical questions. So without further ado, let's meet our four panellists, shall we? My first panellist is new to Theatrical Shenanigans, but is due a second stint when he joined me as a guest for season two. Outside of that, though, he is a writer of stage and screen, editor and a published author. He has a vast list of achievements, including the publication of Stage It and Stream It, Plays for Virtual Theatre, which is available on Kindle and in paperback on Amazon. When he's not busy writing amazing works and winning all kinds of awards, he also teaches in the Department of Theatre and Film Studies at the University of Georgia. So I'm thrilled he could take time out of his busy schedule to join me. Welcome, John Patrick Bray. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> my second panellist is a fellow podcast host who I've had the privilege of discussing my adaption of A Christmas Carol with, which will be airing as my Christmas special on the 24th of December. As well as being the producer and presenter of her podcast, 101 Stage Adaptation, since September 2022, she is also the writer of her own adaptation, Lazero de Tormes, which was adapted from an anonymous Spanish Golden Age novella. She has entertained the masses with interesting interviews, and now it's her turn to chat for the second time on Theatrical Shenanigans. Welcome back, Melissa Schmitz. Thank you for having me back. My third panellist joins me from my side of the pond and is no stranger to theatrical shenanigans either, having been a featured playwright in season one with his wonderfully funny relationship piece, A Trifle Upset, which, if you haven't listened to, I thoroughly recommend. He hails from Norfolk, UK, and as well as being a fabulous playwright, he has also founded his own playwriting group, 4x4. Also, coming up shortly, he has an amazing event on the 9th of September 2023 in the form of a sponsored play reading of 50 plays in 500 minutes. Sounds exhausting. I've had the great pleasure of getting to know him and his work through Literary and Discourse play reading, and now I'm thrilled to have him on the panel. Welcome, Tony Vale. Thank you very much. And last, but by no means least, we have another playwright who was joining us for the first time, but definitely not the last time as she will also be joining me as a guest in season two. With 26 years of playwriting experience, it's no wonder she has such feathers in her cap as a screenplay currently available on Amazon Prime and multiple plays in published print. I am truly thrilled to have her make up my fourth on the panel. Welcome, Jack Jackie Briscon. Thanks for having me. I'm honoured. <laughs> okay, guys. Uh, opening group question. If you could perform in or direct any play, not your own, what would it be? And we will start with Melissa. So, so many, so many. Um, I would love, I'm I'm waiting to age into this role. The <laughs> Madwoman of Shio um, would love to perform that role. We did it in college and I wasn't cast in it. And I was devastated because ah. it was the first time I had ever read a play play and immediately understood a character like inside and out I was like I know exactly who this person is and how to play her <laughs> and now I have to wait mm, at least 15 years in order <laughs> to be age appropriate for it okay Tony what about you I don't compete with anybody when it comes to performing as you know Rachel but uh, as far as directing is concerned I haven't done that either but um, the play which I um, particularly enjoy is the Inspector Call by Lacey mm. Priestley. Um, the, the content of it is very much a, a social um, exploration, really, between the classes, and um, the payoff uh, is uh, brilliant as well. <laughs> so um, I think that's you know that's where I go. And Jackie. Oh, this I know this sounds like probably typical, but my great white whale show has been Noises Off. Mm. And I have been cast in that three times and three times I haven't been able to do the actual production. Oh. Um, so three times I've been cast, once as Poppy, twice as Belinda. 
<laughs> so by the time I finally get to do it, I'll probably be Selston. I know. <laughs> but um, it's my great white whale. I keep every time I see auditions for it. Sometimes now I'm too scared to even go audition at this point. But oh no! And finally, John. Before Tuesday, I would have said Tevia and Fiddler on the Roof, but then Tuesday happened. I went to karaoke for the first time in five years. Oh. And discovered I don't have a voice anymore. <laughs> and that was uh, <clears throat> very disappointing. Um, so I would have to say that the other two in terms of, of non-musicals would be either Connor McPherson's The Seafarer or Connor McPherson's adaptation translation of Uncle Vanya. Uh, there's something about the Vanya character, particularly the way that he writes it, that just is so pathetic and lovely um and then seafarer um i grew up in a large um, irish american catholic family um, extended family away it's just my brother and me but lots of cousins and such and uh you know something about that resonates something about that it's just such a catholic play um it just resonates okay so first question uh melissa in your opinion is there a particular genre that you don't think we see as much of in modern theatre uh, that should have a comeback? And if so, why? Mm, that's a great question. Um, I feel like in terms of the theatre I see and and look for to go see, I try to do a mix of everything just so I know what's going on. So, um, But I think in general, there's less horror uh, plays <laughs> Um, I'm not really sure why I've seen a couple of them that my friends have have put on um, and it's it's just sort of an under underutilized underrepresented genre mm. um, but that's that's the only thing that comes to mind for me but I'm always looking to see something different than what I saw last time so <laughs> yeah I think though with with horror it sounds awful but it's very difficult to get the same tension you do in a film where you've got you know the zoom in of the of the expression and the tension builds and builds and builds uh it's very difficult to get that in theater without really powerful actors i say i'm not saying it can't be done but i'm saying it's much more difficult in my mind i say when it's done well it's fabulous i never really considered theater and horror before I always thought horror would only be film or haunted houses Mm. but I did see and I think it's what when you utilize the right space for horror yeah effective I saw a production in a small black box theater of Frankenstein Mm. and it was intense because you're you're so close to the stage and at one point the creature actually popped up right in front of me I was front row lucky and popped up right in front of me and was delivering his most emotional angry monologue staring right in my face very scary stuff but you couldn't do that in a big proscenium stage or whatever that's I think horror is a much more intimate when it comes to live performance but I agree I never really considered that we don't see a lot of it out there I saw Neil Bell's splatter pattern or spatter pattern at um, Play Arts Horizon back in 2004. And that had a lot of tension and it had a couple of jump scares. Uh, I also once did produce a night of original short horror plays when I was a grad student, when I was a doctoral student. And it was in a, a smaller space, three quarter thrust. And we did things with the lighting underneath the kind of bleacher seats we had and um, made it much more of an environmental experience. Uh, some people did walk out. We scared them or shocked them or did whatever we did. And and some people did walk out and we're always happy. The fun thing about that though, was um, we found, and I learned so much about stage blood, the kind of blood mm-hmm. you can get on clothes that comes out the kind of blood you can get on furniture or the floor, and then the kind of blood that has to come out of the mouth that can be edible. Yeah. Uh, but we had like somebody got their head bashed in. So we had like a wig with a packet We had somebody get their face ripped off. We had somebody get their eyes gouged and crushed. And we had a, a, a beautifully messy time um, <laughs> in this educational environment. And um, 
my doctoral advisor loved the night, but the performance faculty invited me to never do anything there again. Um, <laughs> and uh, I take that as a mark of success. Mm, absolutely. The evening, at least. <laughs> to a sort of multimedia approach, doesn't it? I mean, the technology now um, that um, uh, theatre producers can call upon sound um, you mentioned atmospherics, uh, um, you know, uh, so that um, basically the target would be the five senses um, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, trying to um, uh, attack all of those uh, uh, at any one time. The problem with horror on stage is often it falls into camp. And I don't have a problem with camp, but it seems mm -hmm. like it's it's if you're not you know, how do you create that tension? How do you build it in the writing? And I think that Neil Bell has been very effective in figuring that out, particularly with his um, chilling play. Um, I think that uh, Doug Wright with Quills has figured that out, but it's more of like it gets under your skin and stays with you um, kind of effect. Um, I was going to say Sleep No More, I hear, can be kind of a horror-filled evening for some folks, but... <laughs> Mm. I do think it's bizarre though that there is le there seems to be less horror out there when Halloween is just a perfect time for it. Like obviously because people are doing plays at Christmas and some people do plays in the summer and then Halloween just gets missed out completely in the middle. For me, that's a perfect night of just kind of as as you said, Jackie, in intimate black box theatre or even cafe style with like dim lights and candles on tables and like four three or four like one act horrors and you know you, you'd leave you'd leave an impact um it's not it's to say it's not a genre that can be easily forgotten out here in detroit we used to have um night of the living dead the musical every mm -hmm. halloween and it sold out and it was so good like um at the end of act two the zombies get to the live band and kills the band and turn them all into zombies and then act two the music is all much slower because the band's all zombies oh that sounds it ice. was brilliant and of course the first two rows did get soaked in gore and stuff and yeah. everybody came ready for that like it was a gallagher show and it is a brilliant idea to for theaters to maybe pick up on you will get butts and seats because people love to do things mm. at halloween spooky season is a seller yes and it's it's ripe for theatricality so why aren't you're right why aren't we seeing horror Those and if you think about it uh, a haunted house is immersive theater Yes. I think if somebody just takes that idea and expands upon it and adds uh, like a, a cohesive narrative, you could have a really great theatrical experience. You get that a lot uh, around Halloween over here in theme parks and they advertise for performance students to just go in and get dressed up and basically scare the living daylights out of their, their <laughs> guests. <laughs> the the two things that... that um... I love it on Halloween. One I haven't done in years. So I'm I'm from upstate New York originally. And in Ulster Park, New York, they've got the Headless Horseman um, Hayride, where mm. they do create a new narrative every year. And there's a haunted hayride and then a haunted maze, corn maze, and then two haunted houses. But it all follows one through line. That's uh, a really fun thing. And it's the same thing that you were saying, Rachel, where um, they invite young performers to audition for these roles and play these roles. Yeah. And then the other thing that I do now that I'm in Georgia is in Atlanta, there's a center for puppetry arts. And every Halloween, they have um, uh, the Ghastly Dreadfuls, which is a kind of music hall, these Grand Guignol um, <laughs> evening of theater that's just delightful and wonderful. And some of it's genuinely spooky, some of it's goofy, and it's all <laughs> entertaining. But I wholeheartedly agree there should be more. I would be very happy. It's my favorite season. <laughs> okay. Uh, Melissa, do you have a final closing thoughts before we move on? Um, yes. John, your uh, Dracula adaptation is on my giant stack of scripts to read. So uh, <laughs> you might be getting a call from me in a few weeks. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, instantly before we move on, I mentioned it earlier in the introduction, but if you haven't listened to uh, Melissa's podcast, 101 Stage Adaptations, please do. It's fabulous. It's brilliant. Plug ended. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for no that, problem. Rachel. 
Okay, uh, Tony, in the world of submissions and opportunities, how much of it do you believe is organisations genuinely wanting to give new writing a chance and how much of it is exploitation? Well, it's an interesting question for me because um, I didn't really get too much into this uh, idea of submitting for those sorts of opportunities um, until I got into the sort of international frame of mind, you might say, mm. as a result of COVID. With regard to opportunities, it comes down to whether you feel it's worth doing um, because uh, you get, uh, here in the UK, we have BBC Writers Room, for example, which mm. tends to be a gateway to not necessarily any particular piece of work, but more a relationship with the um, with the writer. Mm. Um, and they had um, over five or six thousand um, entries for this very limited thing. Um, it's one of the reasons myself and several other writers decided if we wanted to write something and be pretty sure it would reach an audience, we'd have to do it ourselves, and we'd have yeah. to do it in a capability um, that, that we could manage as a team. Um, the question itself, I think, comes down to who's offering the opportunity and what is their motivation? Mm. A bit of cynicism, I think, when there's a request for admission fees because, um, you know, a few hundred entries times X, um, and if there's a small um, prize or honorarium or something for the winner, there's a bit of a um, profit there, but I can equally understand, you know, there are costs involved depending on where you're staging this, whether you have anywhere to stage it. Um, so I, I tend to be very open-minded about those sorts of things. Mm. Um, I was very um, pleased. Um, a recent um, entry play of mine um, reached the last 10 and Four plays were required. Now, mm. I wouldn't have known if I'd got anywhere at all had I not reached the last 10. And the fact that I did meant that it must have been not too bad because, you know, I had a percentage chance of um, being selected. Yeah. But generally speaking, you know, are you 10? Are you 110, 210 or 310? Yeah. I don't know. And uh, so I, I think from the submissions point of view, it's as much about who's making the request. Mm. I, I think, I think going back to what you said earlier about submission fees, I think that does put a lot of bees in bonnets because the thing is, yes, they're, granted there are costs involved and obviously the whoever is selected is still an unknown. So if they don't sell as many tickets to the production of the unknown, they then make a loss. But then you also have to turn around and kind of give the blunt, you know, it was your choice to go this route. You have to do your research. You have to look up the play you're about to submit to or the theater you're about to submit your play to yeah. and find out if your play actually fits their mission statement before you submit as well. Don't yeah. just be sending stuff willy nilly. No. Um, and if, if this theater doesn't even really exist, it's just, you know, Hank from his, uh, van down by the river setting up this submission at and saying ben mo me fifty dollars and y'all yeah. you know i mean you have to you have to do your own research you have to see what their previous seasons were but also when it comes to these theaters when they're doing these like 10 minute play festivals yes there are costs but when you do a 10 minute play festival and you're selling tickets you're getting the family members of every cast member at each play you're getting um they're friends. You're getting more butts and seats when you're doing more than one play. So yeah. it really shouldn't be the burden of the playwright to fund your production of the yeah. play. Would you charge Neil Simon to submit a 10 minute play? I don't think so. And yeah. I get that it's about whether or not you're a name or not. Um, there's a local filmmaker out here who says you want to be paid more, be worth more. Well, who determines that? Yeah. You know, it's very frustrating. So I, I think that it, the burden should be on the theater itself. If the theater wants to produce it, don't produce it if you can't afford to produce it. Full stop. Yeah. I respect that you can't afford to produce my play. I've got four explosions in the background. I understand. Some other theater will. But 
if you want to make this production, it's on you and stop making the burden be on the writer. Yeah. But say going back to what you said as well, um, Tony, about uh, the decision to produce yourself, a lot of playwrights rely on the possibility of getting through submissions and uh, compositions and opportunities because they can't afford to do it themselves. And it, it is a little bit heart crushing when I say you said you got down to the, the final 10. If you submit something and then never hear from them again, you've no, I mean, I'm not saying, you know, they need to give feedback for every play, but just, you know, a standard templated email of sorry, you didn't weren't successful this time because I've entered submissions that I've never heard from them again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after a certain point, you kind of assume, but <laughs> I think, I think general etiquette has declined, you know, e- even it's so easy to send an email. It's so easy to send a form email. And yet, yeah, you know, we don't, we don't hear back. And I get this mostly when I'm applying for jobs where I never, ever hear back. Mm-hmm. But in terms of submissions, usually there's a particular email that you send your submissions to. And it's so easy to create an automatic reply with some sort of, you know, nice message. And then again, so easy to follow up with all of the people you're not, you know, moving to the next round to say, thanks, but no thanks. Better luck next time. Exactly. Interesting the culture of it, actually. I don't know if it's varied um, in the States. Um, I the term community theatre one uh, see quite a lot mm. and community theatre over here I don't know if you agree Rachel but we would think of a a, a local drama group and yeah. they usually don't have premises themselves they would hire somewhere they might have a regular venue uh, that they kind of take charge of you know for two or three times a year or whatever else yeah uh, but otherwise it's just a collection of people we have uh, playwrights collectives that mm-hmm. um you know we've had a bunch workhouse minneapolis playwright six in los angeles most popular 13p in new york where a group of of artists writers get together and commit to producing one play by each member over oh, x amount good. of time self-production here it's expensive just like anywhere else i don't do it anymore i used to do it um once i actually made money doing it which was amazing we actually made money once doing it um but most of the time you don't even recoup costs um from being in festivals and such worth it we got some great exposure we did a few things this is years ago those this, this was before we had kids once we had kids that <laughs> changed because it turns out they like to eat a lot um <laughs> Who knew? But, uh, you know yes. what i did like about self-producing though um i didn't like trying to find the money but what i did like was that it did teach me a lot about production and I like that because I do have that. I do keep that hat on now whenever I write. Um, now, in terms of the first question about um, submission fees, I'm really on the fence. I, I think that the comment earlier about, you know, make sure you're not sending the money to Hank who has a van down by the river. I'm going to second that. Yes. That, thank you, Jackie. <laughs> I'm going to second that. Um, but it's like, well, what what happens if you win? I mean, is it production or a publication or or is there a monetary awards yeah. so or is it something like the o'neill where if you're even a semi-finalist or finalist that puts you on the map in some ways so i mean that's kind of a given yeah and unfortunately the writer um is in that kind of back room situation really the deal is if there's money to be made uh, you know a surplus as it were then as the writer, you know, I'm entitled. With submission fees, we're seeing more and more of what screenwriting competitions do and film competitions yeah. do. But uh, so I, I think it's complicated, submission fees. I, I also think that it's um, a tremendous amount of gatekeeping. Um, yes. And, and that that that's problematic because there are some great writers who you meet and you read their work and say, why don't you send to such and such? And they're like, well, I don't have 35 bucks. So... Well, it also takes a certain level of confidence in yeah. your writing to say my writing is worth risking it's like going to vegas and putting it all on red my right. writing is worth whis- risking this 35 dollar fee that i may never see again my writing is that good and i'll be honest i have never had that kind of confidence in my writing because you never know who's <laughs> reading it 
you know, somebody yeah. might read it and say, I just don't like the name of the author, or I don't like the title of the play, and I'm not even yeah. going to give it a chance, and because it's also very subjective. So, Tony, your final thought before we move on? My final thought is to say to any writer, don't um, treat it as a barrier, you know. Um, see it as, as a challenge, and um, be selective, but um, don't um, dismiss the whole idea of submitting to these um, opportunities. Jackie, with the ever-expanding world of television, big-budget films and streaming services, do you think theatre can keep up with that world? Well, the beauty of theatre is that it is not like film and television. Um, It's live. It's right there. And there will always be people who will prefer the magic of live theater. The only thing I think that theater needs to do is make itself a little bit more accessible. Um, it's there. There's a small um, union theater here that I used to work at, and it's no longer in business, but they had like 150 seats. They charged $50 a ticket. That was a lot, I thought, <laughs> and I could never get anybody to come see me. And it's so and yeah, you can ask for industry discounts, but you always feel really badly because, you know, there's a reason why they're charging so much, you think. Um, so theater and if you go to New York or even I'm sure London, the tickets are very expensive, oh, very God, expensive. Yeah. Um, whereas and yes, film tickets are getting more and more expensive, too, but you're you're seeing Ooh, there's Tom Hanks and um, <laughs> and maybe somebody's sexy bottom will appear on the screen too. Ah! <laughs> but with theater, you're like, okay, I'm going to sit there for an hour 45. Maybe I'll get up and catch myself in the loo for 15 minutes and come back for another hour 45. And I don't know, I'm going to hear somebody pontificating about something I don't understand. So we need to make theater a little bit more accessible to the masses um and I know there's a way to do it because a lot of theaters have done it but to the mo- to the unwashed masses theater is only for the rich and the snooty so um that's my thought I think it can compete it just needs to figure out how I think it's gotten it's gotten slightly better where schools will take kids to the theater for either drama or English. Um, so so for say for English, we went to the Globe um, for theater. And it was the same when I went to university, we went to see multiple shows that was kind of covered under the umbrella of our education. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and um, I remember seeing Wicked out here oh. and they brought a school group and the school group, we were all in the nosebleeds and right behind my seats were the bathrooms and the school group all all the girls went into the bathrooms and talked through the whole show and I couldn't hear anything so they're not really I mean they yes they're doing that for school groups um but I don't think they're educating them before they take them to the theater either and I used to do a lot of school performances too I did where we perform in the school where we teach the kids how to write themselves um, I did Dyer Van Frank, and those are special, special shows because they get to do the talk back after and learn about the magic of theater. And that's when it needs to start is bringing the the school groups to the theater, but also educating them about it. And that helps make it accessible for sure. I think, mm. the, I think the talk back side of it is a very good idea, though, because I think oh, yeah. it, it educates the younger generation more about the world of theater. You mentioned the word uh, accessible. Um, I would just refer to that other meaning of it. Um, people literally being able to get there. Yeah. The kind of economics of it, but there's also, um, you know, if you if you live alone or you you're a single parent or whatever, and you know you just you can't get out um, if you have a disability. Um, and this was the exciting thing. Yes. I'm going to say exciting thing about COVID because actually theatres had to work out how to monetize seats when people weren't sitting on them, you know, and uh, that's where the streaming thing, okay, there's technical stuff there, um, but um, the National Theatre over here had well before COVID was doing, you know, film versions of stage productions, you mm-hmm. know, like, like a war horse and so on. 
Um, and, and it was multi-camera, you know, it, it was it was all, um, it was cinematic, really. And mm -hmm. But you could go to your local community centre with a screen um, and actually watch it, you know, for about 10 quid or something like that. So um, it was accessible in, in that kind of way. Mm. And, um, and, and, you know, I, I, I wonder um, if, if that is um, a, a, still a route. Uh, um, there was so much kind of anti about COVID, you know, let's do, we want proper theatre, we want to be together, we want it live, and, and all of those things. And, um, and maybe some of that um, has overtaken the thought that, well, you know, can you, is there a compromise there? Mm -hmm. Stage it and stream it. Plays for virtual theater. Available now through Applause Books. <laughs> nice talk, John. <laughs> Very nice. Because the thing is, if you, you think about going out to the theater, it's not just going out to the theater. To say people are being more cautious about what they're going to see. They want to see shows that they know they're going to to love. But also theaters can cultivate an audience. And I'm going to just use two examples. Um one, there's a community theater in Athens, Georgia called Town and Gown that does a lot of the, and it's an amateur dramatic. It, they do a lot of the, you know, musicals and funny shows that people like, but they have what they call second stage series. So last week, I think it was last week, this summer kind of blends, um, they had um, three performances fully produced of a brand new play um, by a playwright living in Georgia. And it was sold out all three days. The The community came out because the community um, theater has been there for over 50 years and they truly know how to engage with Athens in general. Um, and so there are students that get involved, their professors get involved. And then there's just a lot of folks who are not affiliated with the university that are that are there um, and they've made themselves a staple. Um, and then if you look at Abingdon, Virginia, they have um, the Barter Theater, which is one of the founding members of the League of Residential Theaters. And they are one of the last year-long full-time um, professional repertory theaters in the U.S. And, um, and they've built an audience from the 1930s where people literally were bartering food and livestock and other things to get a ticket and then there'd be a big dinner afterwards during the, this is during the great depression. Mm. Um, and a lot of professional actors of yesteryear, such as um, uh, Gregory Peck and Ernest Borgnine and um, uh, 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 Hume Cronin, uh, uh, Patricia Neal, they, they all performed at, at the barter. And so they created a legacy. So I think that, you know, just in terms of thinking, well, who is this theater? I, and I don't mean like the theater, because who can answer that? But who is this theater for? Yeah. You know, and who is the audience for this theater? And how do we engage with them? How do we entertain them? But then in what ways do we build enough trust that we can start to push the envelope and produce new plays and bring in new works and new actors? Because the worst thing that happens is at that point, a community member might go and see a play and think, well, I didn't like that one, but they're going to come back because there's trust. Theatre, I think you can sell the story, whereas film, you can just, you know, you throw a bunch of famous actors' faces on a poster and a movie title above it, you, you've yeah. potentially got an audience. That's marketing, and that's very much the, the sort of cinema film approach to marketing. Um, actually, one of the problems, I think, that local community theatres have is marketing. Mm. Um I'm a great proponent of the local newspaper and it's going out of fashion, unfortunately. Um, but um, the theatre experience, the shared experience, is about the whole notion of community. And, you know, when you live in a street and you don't know who your neighbours are and, and so on, actually it could be how you meet your neighbours, you know, at the theatre. So um, it's, um, it takes that kind of... Um, you to say this is um, um, I, I, it's the three P's it's people place and purpose you know mm. so the theatre is the place um, within a place you know where it is uh, the purpose of it and of course theatre has is multi-purpose anyway um, and then whoever's doing it um, the, the people come along to do whatever they do and then they meet each other so but it's like um, three legs on a stool you 
you can't manage with two. You have to have the three. <laughs> and uh, it seems to be a fairly good kind of um, principle, really, yeah. uh, in terms of um, whether something's going to work or not. Yeah. Theater, the theater has the opportunity to do things very differently to engage their neighbors, um, to make things feel more like it's for me as the audience, as opposed to um, Arnold Schwarzenegger is going to save the world, not me. Um, there's a theater out this area, my Detroit area, that um, during the pandemic, they started doing something called driveway theater, where they would perform outside in your driveway. You could hire them and they would perform for your block party or whatever. That's and so now cool. that it's so cool. And they continued to do it now. Um, now that they can still do their shows during their regular season, their summer season is supplemented with the driveway theater. Right now they're doing speed dating, this play that a local playwright wrote, where they actually bring audience members in, I think, and they do a speed dating show in your driveway. And it's it's really engaging and inventive. And this is what theater can do that film and TV can't. It can actually bring you into the production and make you feel part of it and make a difference in the production as well. I've written several uh, plays on benches and actually moving the uh, actors from one bench to another, you know, uh, I, I don't know if the layout is quite the same in, in your part of the world, but um, we like um, having nice grassy areas, quiet zones, and, and we put a bench on and sometimes we put a person's name on as a commemorative thing, you know. Um, and uh, so therefore it's a perfect setting for um, a short play and uh, if you've got an audience that's gathered to watch it or you you go to them you know so I, I'm I'm uh, flying the flag for the bench play anyway. <laughs> okay Jackie final thought <laughs> um I guess I'll just reiterate that theater can compete with film and TV because theater is a completely different entity from film and TV. And you can literally engage with your audience by looking them directly in their eyes and they feel it as opposed to, you know, being a dead eyed poster on their wall after the production is done. Mm -hmm. um, theater has a future. It always will have a future. It just needs the proper marketing. John. Looking at the rising influence of AI, do you see that becoming a heavier influence in the theatrical world? And what do you believe the consequences of that will be? You know, it's funny because I've prepared an answer for that question several times, but it seems like every day, every hour, something else is hitting. <laughs> um, and so right now, my feeling about AI is not very good. Um <laughs> You know, uh, there are folks who are writing by AI generator their uh, composition essays. You know, students, there are students who do that. There's been constant emails about what to do, how to catch students cheating this way or that way. And so I think that for me, um, and it's going to be different for everybody, I, I, I put AI, this rollout of AI, this not AI in general, but just the way that AI is being used right now popularly with plagiarism with um copy and paste with um uh you know artificial is the part of it it's not real um and uh does it pose a threat to playwriting i'm going to say maybe only because it seems to be a threat so many other places um you know it's essentially letting somebody else write your play for you that you're submitting um and who knows maybe the ai generator will pump out something great maybe it won't the more i read about ai the more i feel like the world has moved beyond my sensibility mm. um and um you know does it pose a threat to theater i don't know can it pose a threat well it seems to be posing a threat to everything else so probably you know and of course i'm gen x so terminator 2 was very much on our radar when we were yeah. a team. so i was like do you guys not remember terminator 2 um <laughs> so uh yeah, I wish I had a more intelligently thought out answer, but because so much information is developing so quickly about the dangers, so much is being exposed so quickly about the dangers of AI, and of course the writer strikes and the yeah. and the actor strikes, um, and the way that actors are being copied and pasted into things, and um, 
Uh, I know, and then um, there was a, I just read this morning that one of our major news conglomerates are going to have articles written by AI. So, so deadline. And even The Onion is now going to have more uh, articles written by AI. Um, and that's a satire paper. So satire is now being written by, and I, I, I worry that we're forgetting about the ramifications that technology has on people. That anytime we have um, a technology that gives us an easy fix, that or, or an easy convenience, it's at the expense of something else. I, I'm I'm very much a skeptic, and I very much also feel like, okay, well, you know what? I'm doing what I'm doing over here. I have no idea what's going on over there, which is irresponsible of me. And maybe it's a mark of privilege, but um, but I do think it it can be dangerous. So far, it seems to be pretty dangerous. Um, and it does have a definite impact on the lives of writers and actors in Hollywood. So at some point, it's definitely going to have an impact on us as well um, if we let it keep getting out of control. And I'm glad that there are some companies that are stepping up and saying, we're going to put safeguards in place. We're going to try to control this. But I, it's here, right? I mean, AI is here. There's no going back. We've opened Pandora's box. So now it's just up to what kind of regulations can be imposed to try to make sure that it's used ethically whatever that ethical use is. I, I can't help but think, especially when it comes to writing or playwriting specifically, if they're going to use AI to write plays or if a theatre is going to use AI to write plays, then fine. But then they have to be honest about it because let's face it, how likely are you to go and see a play that's advertised with a big, big shiny poster, you know, pictures of the actress, the title, and then right at the bottom, it's got written by chat GPT. <laughs> I don't know. I think well, I think some people will turn out for that. Believe it or I not. Think, I, no, I, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it won't have a. I won't have a following because there were people, you know, fascinated by this concept. But at the same time, you you've got people who, you know, are lovers of, of Weber and Stephen Sondheim and Shakespeare and Arthur Arthur Miller and Agatha Christie and everyone else who's been before, and they're like, no, I will not abandon my my my, my theater. I hope you're right. It's it as an artist. What, where, what, where's the fun in letting a computer write it for you instead of letting your brain write it? You know, I mean, yes, some people will uh, will buy these chat GPT written scripts and that's it's it sucks. But it's it's got also got to be fun because it all they'll also buy scripts written by Hank and that van down by the river who was taking your $50 submission fee and his play ain't that great right. either. But some people liked it, mm -hmm. you know. So, I mean, it's just all about you got to create your art because you want to create your art and not worry that um, a computer might be better than you. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but so, I mean, so are all of you. Y'all are better than me too. And sometimes I get produced and sometimes you get produced. Is it because uh, the, the subject matter here or the focus is around um, the, the arts and culture element? Mm -hmm. That's all fairly subjective anyway. You know, mm -hmm. you're an artist and you, draw a picture, paint a picture, and you put it up in an exhibition and somebody buys it, has the fact that somebody bought it um, given it now credibility? And hang on a minute, actually, I'm going to do prints of this now, and it's not quite the same, you know, it's mm. not the original, but this is a print of a print and so on. So it's a sort of similar thing, um, you know, generating income, but is that any different to a robot putting um, bits onto a car on a production line because otherwise a human would have to do that i think the thing that but using your comparison of the of the robotic car line is that that is a series of steps so that that robot has been given a set of instructions your arm goes here then you pick up this and then that goes there we all know playwriting is not a series of steps <laughs> playwriting can go from you know 10 minutes of an absolute breeze to sitting there at three in the morning swearing at your computer because you can't figure out where you're, where you're going. And I think that's where the difference lies. I don't think creativity is something you can manufacture. I really don't. Not in a, not in a, not in a authentic way. Your lips to God's ears. Yeah. I think the other thing is that um, in terms of the threats that AI poses of which there are many, <laughs> I think theater and the arts are lower. I, I was listening to something yesterday that somebody's trying to use AI and, and these things to hack into the nuclear codes. So, yeah. um, you know, that's a much more serious issue than, you know, is somebody, is somebody, you know, plagiarizing 
you know, a play using chat GPT. Um, (laughs) But uh, so, you know, we, we could, we could, we could be worried about playwrights um, being displaced by AI because some theater companies don't want to pay playwrights anymore to produce new work. They want to have their chat GPT script series, which I think is a great gimmick, (laughs) but, but like, it's just a gimmick. It's not going to completely replace all playwrights. And the other thing is that um, at this moment, AI doesn't really generate anything new. It takes what already has been fed to it and creates something else from it. So I think I think there could be like a temporary threat to theater and and playwrights until we figure out oh these AI generated scripts are stealing from X Y Z scripts that these yeah. people have written and they can now you know file a lawsuit that this is this is this script is plagiarized my other scripts and uh, like AI is not going to be writing Hamilton or like something at a very high level. So, you know, it could be like a fun little like side thing your theater does producing uh, AI generated AI, you know, script festival. But I don't think it's going to completely displace playwrights. I think it, there's more of a threat to, you know, what the WGA is doing right now and and right. um, like the big studios and, and film and, and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but in terms of theater, I think we're safe because there's n- we're not paying playwrights enough to like warrant displacing them by robots at this point. (laughs) Well said. I love that heartbreaking answer. In the worst way, we're not valuable enough to be be, be plagiarized by robots. I'm crying and I'm laughing at the same time. There are going to be playwrights listening to this going, oh no. Well, I'll be drinking tonight. (laughs) And that horrible notion, John, final thought. Well, Today I learned we're not valuable enough to displace. So we're safe <laughs> for now. But in terms of the rest of the world, between the strikes and the possibility of having nuclear codes seized, hopefully there'll still be a theater and a world. <laughs> so we move on to our last question. Um, if there was one thing you can make better or easier in the world of theater, what would it be? And I'm going to go back to John. You know, I, I think that live theater in the U.S. is not as important part of our culture as it used to be. Mm. And and it's not just that that I don't think it's just film and television, because lots of places have fil- film and television where theater seems to be doing at least all right from a bird's eye view. Well, not great, but better than we do here. Um, so. I'm not sure how to make it better or easier, but what I'd love to see is I'd love to see it become part of our culture again. And I have to wonder if this goes back to the earlier comment I made about town and gown, the community theater, and then barter theater, the professional theater in Abingdon, that um, the notion that, you know, we shouldn't ask what can theater do, but what can this theater do in this space, in this community? I think perhaps that's it. I think that maybe... If I a way to make it better, for lack of a better term, would be perhaps um, having a theater that works with and is for and by a community. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps if we see a proliferation of that, like maybe a new little theater movement or a new community theater movement or something, um, that maybe we could remember just what a joy it is. Um, maybe. <laughs> Jackie? Man, can't follow that. That's brilliant. I mean, I I guess I'll go back to accessibility, um, making it, but not necessarily making it cheaper and or easier to get to the theater, but making it so that it feels like it is for you, um, that it's not too uh hoity-toity to go to the theater this is going to be a good fun time out so accessibility can mean a lot of things and I think in my mind accessibility is the word that I would like to 
make theater is um, make it fun, make it intriguing, make it for you. And I love the idea of making each theater for the community. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of stealing John's answer, but I'm twisting it and making it for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tony. I'm going to say, I want to use, uh, look at that word community and a bit of it, the unity bit, um, because I think unity is the important bit of community. And if um, um, members of the community or sections of the community, um, over here we, we talk about um, the private sector, the public sector, private being commercial organisations, public being local authority, and there's a third sector, which is the voluntary charitable sector. So there's elements there. But the unity comes from what do each of these elements um, need to get out of it and to show um, how each can do that. So if it's a commercial organisation that wants to make its presence known, it can uh, invest a a bit of its um, promotional pound or Mm -hmm. promotional dollar into uh, this theatre or this production, particularly if it carries a certain message which is in keeping with their their corporate um, image, if you like. Um, And um, it's also about unity of population, you know, uh, being representative of all of the community um, in in its various forms. So um, I go for community with unity being the, the kind of thing and finally melissa i would like artists and everyone involved in creating theater to be paid more while at the same time making tickets affordable for the communities in which these theaters are producing short swift and to the point <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, that brings us to the end of this episode of The Panel Presents. Um, Guys, thank you so much for joining me. You've made this an absolute joy. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was fun. (laughs) Thanks. And that brings another episode of The Panel Presents to an end. I hope you've enjoyed the discussions and debates we had today. And if you can take away something interesting, then that is what it's all about. I hope you can join us again on the 2nd of September where I'll be engaging in more lively discussion with a fresh set of panellists so make sure you don't miss it. We also have a treat for you tomorrow in the form of the start of season 2 of Theatrical Shenanigans. As of 10am UK time, episode 1 will be going live and I will be joined by John Busser who was the playwright of the last piece we had at the end of season 1 and we will be listening to the first of 10 original plays that will fill the second season, so make sure you don't miss out. As always, if you like the show, then please show your support by liking, sharing, commenting, or visiting our Buy A Coffee page. In the meantime, though, I've been Rachel Feeney-Williams, this is Theatrical Shenanigans, bringing down the curtain and saying, I hope you can join us next time. Theatrical Shenanigans was an RFW Scripts production, with music written and produced by Chris Cody.